I am not a writer that thinks writing is so hard and, you know, we're all doomed and this is the hardest life I could have chosen because I am one generation from people that survived a war and came here as immigrants. So I would never, ever try to say my life is like harder than many other people's lives. I think that's crazy when writers talk like that because we're so lucky that this is the life we've chosen, you know, to document the world in fictive ways. I mean, that sounds like a dream job. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. Uh, I think it's important to note before this episode that this is the last one we'll be posting before we take our much-needed little-earned summer break. Uh, Jeff's going to do some traveling. I'm going to get my life in order, hopefully. Uh, Fingers crossed. It's like high school all over again. I just can't wait until graduation. (laughs) Hopefully a little less hormones this time around. Um, But this week on the show, we've got the author of one of my favorite books of 2015. It's called Bright Lines, and her name is Tani Nandini Islam. Uh, And Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about her? So Bright Lines was published by Penguin Paperbacks in 2015 and was a finalist for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, which is a really big deal, by the way. Uh, A lot of amazing writers um, have been nominated for that award. Uh, She's the founder of High Wildflower Botanica, which is a small batch niche perfume, candle, and skincare line. And her writings appeared all over the place, websites, magazines. And it's all, you know, moving, powerful stuff. Uh, It's not often on the show that we have a writer who is also an entrepreneur outside of the media realm. Um, And she talks to us about, like, what that means, how it's affected her writing, um, how it's affected her schedule, which seems, you know, outrageous, to be honest. I don't know how she does any of what she does. Uh, But, you know, she also talks to us about... um, a lot of subjects that you know were really powerful to me and i hope you know make you think so if you want more of us during the break the best way to follow us is with the newsletter at www.podcast.com uh if you want you can also follow our personal twitter accounts which will be updated infrequently and probably not to much effect uh you can also follow the show twitter account which is www podcast take a listen and we'll see you in september Welcome, Tani. And for anyone listening, you know, it took us forever to get Tani in, in studio. Um, and we're actually doing this via Skype uh, because she's been so busy because the novel is being, is so successful and her retail business is killing it right now. Uh, so you know, I think uh, congratulations. You are coming Thank to you. us from Thank the high, high Wildflower studio, correct? Because you were telling us about having just poured some candles. I did just pour some candles. Um, I have some accounts that I'm fulfilling orders for and, you know, just burning the midnight oil, burning candles, lighting them, pouring them. <laughs> Pretty literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear because, you know, you always hear about writers who have to, you know, supplement their income in other ways, but you don't often hear about them doing it in, in you know, such ways, creating your own business, selling, you know, perfume and candles. Um, so, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to now? Well, first I want to say that probably you don't hear about writers doing that because I don't think we're very well suited to (laughs) running businesses. Um, And I'm learning that the hard way. And it does cut into your writing time. So anyone who's thinking of doing it, be aware of that. 
Um, but I kind of uh, wanted to start a business after I finished revisions of my novel, the final revisions. And I had been traveling in Bangladesh, kind of fleshing out those last details to really make the book feel like the book I wanted to publish. And I just couldn't imagine sitting in an office, sitting in a desk, um, applying for media jobs and publicist jobs and brand managing jobs for other people. Um, and I just had worked, I've only worked for one man in my life and I just was like, I cannot ever work for a man again. So I wanted to work for myself and, you know, I've learned a lot of things I and mean, the internet is an amazing uh, place to learn different skills. So candle making kind of came as a part of that, but perfume is really what I've always been interested in. So I just thought, you know, there are all these people doing their own indie, artisanal, obnoxious businesses. Why don't I add my <laughs> business to the mix? And, you know, it actually turned out to be something really beautiful that I'm really proud of. Um, and it took over and it has taken over a lot of my, you know, work life um, in how, addition to freelancing and, and writing essays and stuff. How did you initially get into perfumes in general? Into perfume? I mean... That is a question that I think about a lot because I think olfaction has been very central to me as an artist and as a writer. I'm very, very much um, a person that thinks about, you know, scent and memory and how my characters perceive the world around them in very sensual uh, ways. So that's something that I've noticed um, as a writer. I, I write a lot about is olfaction. But, you know, for me, the earliest memories that I have of things that smell good are, you know, my mom and my grandma and <laughs> their perfumes. And, you know, it's like a very typical answer, but it's really true. I, you know, I come from a very fragrant, you know, for better, or for worse uh, people. And I feel like that's where a lot of these beautiful materials are from, you know, in South Asia and other places that I've traveled to. So I really associate it with a lot of my interests and in travel and what I like to write about in the way that the people that I'm writing about perceive the world around them. So have you learned all of the things that you know about perfume since you started the business? Or what sort of knowledge base were you coming into this business with and how have you gone about building it since you started? Well, much like buying books and collecting books, I started buying oils from different flowers and trees and resins and uh you know, it's not just like lavender and orange and things that we've heard of, but it's also things like Africa stone tincture, which is the shit of a cat in Africa or <laughs> you know, like uh, Hawaiian sandalwood, royal Hawaiian sandalwood or, you know, things that I kind of felt like were very niche and interesting and you smell it and there's all these like aroma molecules that hit your nose and they're so complex. Um, What's the... What's the weirdest thing that you put in a perfume? For me right now, um, I would say one perfume has eucalyptus absolute, which is not like eucalyptus. So when we think of eucalyptus, we think of Vicks or menthol and, and very like chemforest smells. But eucalyptus absolute is like nutty and thick and viscous and smells like dirt. So that's something that I'm playing with right now. Um, and one of my really popular perfumes. And then there's this other aroma chemical, which is not natural, called norlimbinol. And that smells like desiccated earth. And it's just like incredible. It's like one of the most fantastic aroma chemicals I've ever smelled. So I have a lot. I mean, I have a lot of things you can see 
here. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. She, she, she's showing us her uh, studio, which is filled with. Looks like hundreds of bottles. Yeah. Bottles and jars. and Lots of stuff and jars. Too many jars. So, you know, that's kind of like. Oh, I have cannabis too, cannabis sativa essential oil, which I'm working on a perfume with that in it. So, you know, I'm really interested in taking the natural world, taking these snapshots and then distilling them into this very real sensory experience, um, which is the perfume. So you said that this is affecting your writing and your writing has affected this, but, um, (laughs) you know, which which is kind of crazy because, I mean, the the last thing that most writers I feel like think about is um, the olfactory senses in their writing, um, just because you know smell it's such a powerful you know sense, but it's not really the first thing that people go to when they're you know trying to describe it on the page. So is there you know an example you can point to of of you know where that really took effect for you? Well. I think that's such an interesting idea, and I actually talk a lot about this in like perfume workshops that I teach. Is that sense, our sense of scent and like smell, is something that we really don't have the language for, which is why I'm fascinated by trying to explore that in fiction. Because you're right, it's not easy to talk about the way things smell or how we perceive them. But as humans, the way that we smell and how it's laced in our memory is so deep for all of us. You know what I mean? So it seems almost stupid to not try to explore that in fiction. Um, Not that people are stupid for not exploring that, but I really think that there is such an opportunity to take this sort of silent sense that we have, which is our sense of smell, because everything that we describe a scent with is, you know, kind of words that are not precise. And it's almost like this completely imprecise way of talking about the way things smell. So if you take cake or something, you're like, well, it smells sweet, it smells nutty, it smells you know, like chocolatey or what, it's very imprecise. And I think that's the thing that I'm really drawn to is how to kind of create a moment that resonates, that has precision, that is something that is so unique to the experience. So for me, I mean, there's this incredible smell that I will always associate with going to Bangladesh, to Dhaka, to visit my family. And it's like this really green, fresh smell that is completely muted by the scent of muddy shit. And I think (laughs) burning trash. And it's so unpleasant and pleasant at the same time. And I think that that kind of dichotomy and the things that we smell, especially living in cities and living in New York City, it's something that I think um, all of my characters kind of have have that interaction with the the world around them in bright lines and in the new book that I'm working on as well. Can you describe what cake smells like if you're trying oh to do it in a precise way? Well, I think that there are notes. If we talk about notes, there are notes that are very vanillic and nutty, um, almost like a balsamic round, you know, odor to it. Um, it's very warm and war- again, these are like imprecise words. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to I, think I don't of, mean to put you on the spot. No, no, it's good. This is good. Um, well, it's funny because the, the... If it's chocolate cake, then there's like this bitter kind of... Uh, again, you just... You would describe it as like chocolatey. You know? <laughs> like it's so, it's so maddening, I feel like. Well, when, um, when you were describing, you know, how Bangladesh smells, I, I was thinking, you know, I'm from New Hampshire and, and when I go to New Hampshire in the summer, I can, you know, I feel like I can smell the humidity but there's not really a way to describe that other than, you know, you're basically saying that you smell, you know, the temperature, which is not possible, really. 
Mm-mm. And so. it's so much how you feel when you get there. You know, immediately when you smell humidity, it's thick and moist and muggy and exhausting, you know. So I think, again, it's like that sense is so hard to describe that we just refer to the other senses that are much easier for us to access in terms of how it connects to our faculty with language. Interesting. Um, so when you're trying to put together the fragrance for a per- perfume, are you drawing mostly from these memories that you have or are you trying to build new experiences and where do the two meet if ever they do? Um, I think for me, that's really about place, the perfume. I'm very, and again, like, you know, sense is one thing, scent is one thing, but perfume making for me is also very much about distilling a place into a fragrance. So, you know, some of the perfumes that I have, I mean, one of the most important trips that I ever took was right after I got fired. And, you know, I was a brand manager at a cool hipster startup and the bro who was running this thing was like such a jerk and he completely, you know, invisibilized me and my work and then I got fired and I was like well fuck this I'm gonna finish my book and like go to Hawaii so I booked a ticket to Hawaii and I went alone and I've been with someone for several years and he didn't come with me so it was really like this thing of like well what am I gonna do today and you know there's such a guilt that paradise engenders because you're just like I gotta do shit because I don't have this in New York and it's like the ocean and the volcanoes and the mountains everywhere Um, So a lot of the things that I got inspired by were through this trip that I took. Um, So I have two perfumes. One is called Hanale and one is called Namaka. And Hanale is about a specific place that just has this completely mythic quality to it where there's literally mist and fog rising up from this completely gorgeous um, junglish, like jungly, I don't know, (laughs) jungly, uh, you know, environment and there's flowers that are blooming that are huge and bright and hibiscus everywhere and I was like how the hell am I going to distill this into a perfume so I used a lot of ingredients that you would find in Hawaii like ylang ylang and sandalwood and jasmine and rose and things that bloom there that you could recall a tropical place by smelling that I I think I finally understand the poetry on each uh, in each package oh yeah yeah (laughs) I mean, just listening to you speak, it's it's <laughs> it's wild. So I can like imagine the the scent as you're saying it. I want you to imagine it. Absolutely, it's very transporting. And I think living in a city, you know, that's such a. I've been feeling very miserable, to be honest. And it's kind of funny how you know you can have really wonderful things happen to you, but then as we get older, you know. I just don't want to work as hard as I do all the time. You know, like it's 830 at night. I've been working since 10 o'clock, you know, and then I'm talking to you. This is work because this is my life as a writer, you know, being documented. And then I'll be writing after this. I have two pieces due. And it's just like this constant state of working that I think is something that I'm very aware of. And I think that these like moments of respite and poetry and beauty are very much something that I need. So I think this all came out of craving that sort of beauty in my life because it's just like so easy to feel like you're grinding and working and kind of dying all the time when you live in a city like New York. I was going to say, how much of that do you think is related to New York itself and how much to the lifestyle of the writer? I think that 
I am not a writer that thinks writing is so hard and, you know, we're all doomed and this is the hardest life I could have chosen because I am one generation from people that survived a war and came here as immigrants. So I would never, ever try to say my life is like harder than many other people's lives. I think that's crazy when writers talk like that because we're so lucky that this is the life we've chosen, you know, to document the world in fictive ways. I mean, that sounds like a dream job. But um, I think New York, it's this relationship, you know, you can't get out of because you're obsessing over this this place and there's nothing like it and nothing feels like it. And you go away and you come back and you remember how much you love it. But it is a constant grind and a constant like negotiation of space and attention and how to get money and how to get, you know, published and how to how to get things. And I think that that constant conflict is very very tiring and exhausting for most of us um, yeah. and tie up our worth and I, that's something i never wanted my fiction to do or you know my i, I just I, yeah i just didn't want to tie up my my ego with you know what i do with who i am you know like soul that i was born with which is very kind of philosophical i guess but i i like to be like this is just my earthly existence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're certainly dealing with something that, I mean, you're certainly dealing with something that Kyle and I have discussed a lot. You know, the grind that everybody's on really does take it out of you. And I don't know. I don't know if we understand it on the same level, though, because on top of running your own business and being a writer, you're also a teacher and you call yourself a non-profiteer. And it sounds like just from reading different interviews with you that you're part of a it's sort of a collective of people who are all running their own businesses in relatively the same space mm-hmm. well I have been lucky to meet a lot of business owners since I kind of started this and most of them are women and we all talk about the same boring things that you would talk about with businesses like where do you get your bottles made where do you get your labels made how would how are you shipping stuff just like stupid things that you never think about unless you have a business um but, you know, for me, it's like I have a support system in a community, but it's, it's such a wonderful experience, I mean, to see how many people I have met. You know, I'm 33 now, but when my book came out at Greenlight, you know, everyone's like, no one's going to come to my reading. This is going to be horrible. And that week, a friend of mine got hit by a truck and died. My mentor, who was supposed to do my event with me, like, couldn't come because he had family issues and I had an Urban Outfitters order due that I fucked up and had to redo from scratch and I was like this is the worst week of my life and like the only thing that I have ever cared about which is my novel for 10 years is coming out this week and I don't even care and I think that that was actually a blessing because I was so done with the week and just being so obscure and being so unhappy and being so you know, worried all the time that that night I just, I wore a sari. I was with another writer friend, Mira Jacob, who I absolutely adore and love, who we just rocked it. And she wore Indian clothes too. So it was like these two South Asian women, like sitting in a crowd of 200 people who came from when I was a teaching artist, when I was a community organizer, when I was at Vassar, when I was at Brooklyn College, 
my freaking family who I've known since I was born. I mean, everyone from every walk of life. And I'm like, well, that's why I did all this stuff is like collecting all these amazing people who I've maintained connections and relationships with, you know, for a decade or more. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I continue to do is just find spaces where there can be synergies between the different things that I'm interested in. You know, so right now I'm teaching, but like it's the class is called This Must Be the Place. A, because I love that song, and B, because what is place? It is a culmination of experiences and patterns and things that happen in a place over and over again to give it some sort of form and meaning. And it's our sense of sight and sound and smell and movement and and everything, you know? So I think that's like a way for me to bring in some of my sense stuff and some of other things that I've been interested over the years um, into the space of teaching. It just seems like everything is a natural extension of what came before it. I think that theme is really evident in Bright Lines and it's interesting in particular to me at least because I, you know, Bangladeshi history is not something I'm terribly familiar with. But through your characters, you managed to convey such a broad range of experiences at different time periods. I think you can really feel that theme coming through in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you have to commit to, or is that just something that comes naturally from this sensibility of place that you have? Um, you know, it's so interesting how you end up with something and it seems like it was so intentional. But for me, I mean, my family didn't grow up talking about Bangladesh and the war and stuff. And I've only been there a handful of times. So I was just as much as my reader constructing this world um, as I saw it in my mind. You know what I mean? And and from traveling and from talking to people who lived through the war. Uh, but again, the things that I think are so fascinating is I interviewed one man who lived through the war. Um, and he described the color of tracer bullets when they went through the sky and he said it was like this really intense magenta color and I just remember thinking that when I was there it was March and that's watermelon season and that's the same exact color that he was describing you know so it's just like these very um everyday quotidian things like slicing up a watermelon in watermelon season but then seeing like this really treacherous deadly sky when you crack that open you know and Mm -hmm. that's not the image I went for because that's a little too on the nose so what I did was that was in my mind and my heart and then the scene in which my character Anwar is with his friend and he is a self-proclaimed pussy you know he hates war he hates fighting he doesn't want to do any of this stuff he is with his friend and they're going to save these women who've been gang raped for God knows how long by the Pakistani forces and they're in this cabin and they get them, they walk through this field of watermelon, pluck the women out of the house and the first thing they do is slice it open with a machete and feed it to them because it's like the only sustenance that they can provide these women. Um, So yeah, it's all kind of like connected to my sense of place and the sensual world around us, but it's very much rooted in these like stories and snippets that I heard when I was doing research. And to make that alive to the American reader is to make it alive to myself because I'm pretty much just as ignorant as, you know, your average American reader, which is why I think it's so funny when, 
you know, you read like comments from strangers that are like, I didn't know nothing about Bangladesh. And this is like really fascinating Muslim family life. And that, and I'm like, aren't they just like people to you? Like, why <laughs> are you ghettoizing them in your own mind? Like, it's like doing a disservice to how you think about people in a book. I never read a book thinking like that taught me about this culture and, and make it so boring, you know? Well, what about when you're reading? I mean... You're, you're talking about novels right now. You're not talking about, like, nonfiction, right? I'm talking about novels. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess my question is, can you talk to us a little bit about your process of, of taking these experiences from your own life and, you know, fictionalizing them? And, and you know, personally, when I'm writing, I, I always worry about, you know, how certain people will see, you know, some of the perspectives that I'm writing about. Um or writing from because you know I might view things differently as they do uh, than they do. But I, I guess my question is, um, you know, how is your process affected by you know the people who may be offended or may you know have a different opinion or perspective than the ones that you write? Well, uh, imagine growing up and always feeling like an alien, which I feel like all of us kind of do, especially if you choose to be an artist or to write. So for me, I never fit into this mold of, you know, good woman or Muslim woman or modest woman or any of these things that were kind of taught to me um, as a Bangladeshi American woman. And I have always rejected that. So for me, I'm coming from a place of feeling different and alien and queer and rejected and I think that's something that I always have to negotiate. You know, for me, like, I have had so many opportunities to write about stuff that is intensely personal. And I have to always have this moment of like, God, do I really want to have that conversation with my mother before I do this? Because I'm very close, but she's very traditional. She's very Muslim and she's very religious. So it's like always a negotiation. And I think that there's two things that I actually just had this, I had this amazing night with two writers, um, two other Asian American authors, and we were smoking and drinking and reading tarot cards. And it was just like this <laughs> epic night, you know? And I was like in my home, I have a really like beautiful home that I've made with my partner. And I was just like, God, I fucking hate writing for the internet. Cause it's like picking away at my own skin and like giving it to people, you know? And it's just like, here, like take shit that I mind out of my own temple and, and take it from me. And A, don't understand what I'm saying and, and, and they don't like, I guess they don't really, I mean, once it's out there, it's theirs. And that's just like fiction too. But I think for nonfiction, what I've come to realize through that conversation with these writers is that all nonfiction is fiction. It's all fiction because what I choose to tell you is all that I will tell you. And that is not as deep and dark as it can go because I've had some very noir dark moments in my life, but that's for when everyone is dead. And then I will write that because <laughs> who writes stuff that will basically alienate every single person in their life. I don't think many people are able to do that, you know, until they're kind of liberated in some way, which usually means they've either estranged themselves from their family or their family is no longer there. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've I've had a lot of conversations with, especially with writers, uh, or about, especially with writers. Um, and you know, I think that 
you said something really interesting there where, you know, when you write for the Internet, you're kind of losing, you know, it, it becomes something else, something entirely different, something that's not your own. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that because I think that sharing your experience doesn't really like mean that your experience is gone from your own life. Well, let me let me well, ask. I don't know that that's what I'm that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that once I offer you my life, you can attack me for what I said and there is no safety net, no recourse, no I don't get anything out of it. That's true. And, and that's that's what's fucked up about it. Is that's what my issue is is what am I getting out of it? A clip 10 minutes of attention, more Twitter followers, more Instagram followers. What am I getting out of it? What am I getting out of telling you I was raped? What am I getting out of telling you about my trip to Bangladesh and how I felt unsafe or how I felt like I connected with women there? What am I getting from anyone out of it? There's no safety for women who choose to share their life experiences and really gut themselves and cut themselves to share that because you are attacked, trolled, brutalized and treated like crap for doing it. But I mean, what, ab- what about the people that you are reaching? Because I, this is right, a, this is a exactly. theme we've also come back to on this podcast in particular is that the people it's, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. The trolls are always the loudest, but there, are, I, I mean, especially for someone who's writing about powerful things like, you know, surviving rape and things like that. I'm, what about the people who are out there who are reading it and taking positive things away from it? And growing so from your experience. I, that's exactly, I mean, that's, that's the what thing that saves it all for me, right? I mean, <laughs> it are, it's that those, it's, it is those people. Um, I wrote this piece for Vice um, called No Country for Young Women. And it was one of those things where it's a travelogue of my experience in Bangladesh as a researching novelist for Bright Lines. And Honestly, the thing that I am so aware of, I mean, this is a country the size of Wisconsin and there are 160 million plus people living in it. I mean, that's insanity. That is people living on top of people living on top of people. No one who hasn't been, like, if you haven't been there, you cannot imagine that kind of suffocation. So if you're a woman who's 5'7", who wears shirts that show her skin and, you know, talk with an accent and it's just like, you are kind of an alien in this land. And I wrote about that experience. And part of that essay um, describes traveling by bus. And, you know, after the woman in Delhi was raped, gang raped on a bus, and I lived in Delhi, so I know how that city can be. I lived in a market that after, you know, after the sun went down, it belonged to men and dogs. And I swear, I would just look at my sister who was traveling with me, like one eye open, being like, God, don't let us get raped or killed on this bus as we're trying to get to our next destination. I mean, that thought went through my mind and it brought me back to my own experience. And my, you know, I talked to my mother before that and I was like, look, mom, like this is going to come out and I feel like I need to tell this story and I don't want to, I never want to lie when I'm writing, even though I'm saying that all nonfiction is fiction. I'm just trying to feel as good about whatever I put out there as I can. And she's like, well, if you have to do it, you have to do it. I don't know. I don't want your father to know. I don't want anyone to know. But you know what? People in her Bangladeshi circle of people, they started sharing it because she is in the blogger 
kind of seen and and commenting and and these women who are feminist bloggers who were coming out with their own stories of survivorship and that is incredible to hear that because this is not a place where people talk about getting raped. I mean, the freaking women that were raped during the war are called war heroines. And there's an euphemism to describe their experience of being brutalized during that war. So I think for me, those moments are so much greater and more powerful than the trolls. Um, but as I feel this need to always have a relevant voice in the non-fictive sense, I think it takes away from fiction and that, that makes me feel very worried and, and I don't like it. <laughs> so where is the, the middle ground, I guess? Where, do, where does it start to become worth it for you to start, uh, you know, to continuously just put yourself out there? Well, I think, you know, the last piece of nonfiction I just wrote that's coming out uh, this week, it's about failure. And, you know, I'm not a, a think piece hot take reaction person at all. Like I, I can do it and I've done it, but, um, this is about living in, in Delhi and starting a clothing line because I was in love with someone who wasn't in love with me. And I, I think it was just a great metaphor for like making these like ugly, horrible, ill-fitting clothes because I be with this guy that I was in love with, um, for a very long time. And I, it just, I had, to take this decade to write it in a way. So I think, you know, for me, it's like whenever the story presents itself and writing about failure, the failure of love and the failure of my first business venture and, and being addicted to Vicodin and all these things that I, I don't really talk about. Um, it was this opportunity to talk about it in the context of failure because I could see those actions for the first time. And I'm slow. Like I don't, always see like, hey, the clothing line and the sky and this horrible chest pain that I had were all about the same thing, which is this sense of failure, you know, and, and really disappointing myself and my family and, you know, wasting money and time and, and all this stuff. So I think I, I, I find the middle ground to be how can this further my philosophy and the way I think about life and and actually be something that enriches me by writing it, you know, and, and even the imagery and the metaphors and the things that I choose to put in there, you know, help me to become a better writer, a stronger writer. So if I don't feel it, I'm not going to write it. I'm, I'm actually struggling with something like that right now. Um, oh, yeah? You're not feeling it anymore? <laughs> well, no, not that I'm not <laughs> in this particular room at this moment. No, no, no. Be more specific about the timing. <laughs> so I'm writing a story, uh, which it, it's an essay that has to do with something I went through about 10 years ago as well. And mm -hmm. it is, I'm trying to find like this bigger meaning and what the, what's in the story. Like, does it have to do with this girl, you know, that I had this, you know, relationship with at the time that I thought was, you know, going to be the best thing of my life and it turned out not to be um or is it really just is that just something i'm trying to put in there because i feel like it, it it's a filler um so i mean i what's guess the other part of it i'm sorry what's the other part that's not the girl part what's the other part? i it is my experience working at a bookstore in high school and watching the uh i mean high school is a big issue here but um watching my uh the owner and the manager of this store, you know, break up after a 10 year relationship and how it affected both of them. Mm, wow. 
So. Hey, I mean, I see a connection. I'm sure it's just hard to talk about it without feeling like you sound a type of way. Like, I think we judge ourselves. Like, am I being corny? Am I being trite? Am I not being deep enough? And I think that's what I did for a long time thinking about this story. You know, it's just. Where do you I, go to break yourself out of that perspective? Like, what? where do you go to sort of find the ground in your uh, in your story? Hmm. I... I need to start analog at first. So it's like coffee, my notebook, and like writing it all out and really, really distinct like moments, just very, very, very distinct moments. Like for this story about failure, I mean, there was a scene where I I just remember being in a tailor shop and this Punjabi woman, I'm Bengali, so there's a lot of differences culturally and I'm also American. So there's a lot of differences. So she just was making me a dress and I put it on and I just was like, my hips looked gigantic in this. And I was just like punching my hips to be like, go away. Tons of women punch parts of their bodies to make it go away. which is very bad. <laughs> Does it work? <laughs> um, I wish it did, but it doesn't. Uh, my editor was like, Oh my God, I've done that. And it's like, wow, like that idea of just being like, oh, I want this to go away. You know? uh, can I can I tell you something? Yeah. Guys do it too. You punch stuff too? Yeah. Weird, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it must be universal. So humans just want to like obliterate themselves to feel better. Um, and I remember this woman, like she just grabbed me so hard and was like, this is a classic Indian woman's figure. Like, get it out your fucking head that this isn't a sexy body. And I was like, wow. And I, I, I remember, I mean, I'll never forget that moment. I mean, it was very, it was very empowering. Cause I just, you know, you're in America and it's like, if you've ever, if you Google like ideal gene model and it's like this white girl with no butt and it's like, she's like the prototype for genes in this country, which is like the bane of every woman who has the big asses existence. So I'm like, finally a woman who gets my body, you know? And I found this way to describe that, which is like, she held me like intimate, like a lover, but firmly, you know, like a mother. And it was like this thing where I had never really thought of it that way, but it felt intimate, you know, in the way that a lover feels. And she was very, very, very maternal at the same time. And I think that those are things that like helped me to kind of, okay, here's one mother character who's popping out of nowhere. How can I mirror that? And it's about creating these like synergies and mirrors from the top, you know, the top of the essay until the end and then tying it up for the reader, you know, and it, that's how I kind of think about any nonfiction that I write is just how to balance those images and scenes. Um, so that there's that payoff at the end. Now, would and you, if I could learn to do that in a short story, then I would feel great, but I, <laughs> I cannot write a short story for the life of me. No, that sounds, that sounds a lot to me like subtext, but I don't think it's the same thing. Mm -mm. I think, I mean, I think of it as scenes like map, like mapping points of the story and how am I going to move? Like I'm taking your hand and now we're going to walk and where are we going? I'm not sure, but I'm going to take you from place to place to place to place. But when we get there, you're going to get what it all meant, you know? So that's mm -hmm. like the essay for me. Interesting. So you mentioned before that you, you hate hot takes. Um, and <laughs> I, I them. So I, what does that mean? Well, that means that you're, <laughs> like you're just a regular person because everybody loves reading them. But, um, <laughs> 
but you I actually my question is is a little weird because I up until now had considered this a hot take that you wrote but maybe I'm wrong um, and it has to do with uh, the piece you wrote about Aziz Ansari's Master of None Okay, I'm going to I'm going to say something right here. Unless you want to continue saying something and then I'll jump in. I feel, I feel like we should <laughs> let I have you. I have a comment. Yeah, no, I I so I you're thinking it's a hot take. It's an immediate I, hot take. I have a, a feeling take. that that this is not going to be a good response. Well, what's good though? See, you could get very philosophical with <laughs> words like good. I mean, it's not bad. Okay. But I am a South Asian person. Mm-hmm. You are a white person, right? Yes. How old are you? I'm 28. Okay, I'm 33. And I have spent my entire life not seeing anyone who looks like me on TV. My entire life. I have spent my entire life not reading a book with a Bangladeshi character who was American and a woman. I have spent my entire life not seeing films with a sexy South Asian American actor, you know, as the lead. Mm-hmm. So that to me is the antithesis of a hot take because yes, to you, Master of None is a current television show on Netflix. Writing about it is a hot take. For me, it's like a culmination of me failing as an actor, me never seeing anyone like me on TV, finally seeing someone with their own fucking show who did a great job with what he had and is very visible and making culture and being in Brooklyn and making this Brooklyn story about the quotidian and being in love and following your you know dreams and being an idiot or whatever. I mean, all that stuff. I mean, that's like, that's amazing. And like, to me, that is revolutionary enough for me to write about because it never has existed before. Yeah. And well, and, and I didn't mean any offense by that. What I was going to say, I'm, is, I'm just saying like, that is not a hot take for me because in my context, it's a freaking slow simmering, burning, you know, stew that I've been like waiting to write this thing for. Yeah. Well, Doesn't I mean, it- I think it's, I think it's amazing that that's, you know, happening. And I think that we are currently living through this revolution where, you know, more and more things like that are happening. You know, ta Coates writing the Black Panther comics, you know, the new Wonder Woman. Um, Hillary Clinton uh, theoretically clinching the nomination for president. Which, uh, you know, no matter what your politics are, that's incredible. Oh, that was a face. (laughs) Yeah, we can see that was there was a little bit of a face in that. I was like... Well, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, some people would have viewed that as a hot take. And, and I did up until like I really sat down and thought about it prior to this conversation, by the way. But, um, you know, what what makes that a hot take for someone and not for someone else? Is it just based on, you know, the audience? Um. Well, I like to think I answered this question with what I said. You did. But <laughs> I... I majored in women's studies when I was in college, and mm-hmm. it was all about intersectionality. That's all I thought about. That's all I still think about. And it's just coming into vogue now. And as they say, the young people are woke right now, and that's <laughs> so exciting. Um, I think that when people read something about something contemporary and they don't contextualize the person writing it along with it, and you know, in that piece, I did talk about going to auditions and mm-hmm. getting like really horrible, horrible feedback or parts 
thrown at me or whatever. I mean, I was just like, this is not where the power is. The power is in writing characters and writing things that can actually make a difference, not playing like the cab driver's wife or whatever. You know, it's just like I went through all of that as an aspiring performance artist and actor when I moved to the city from from school. So, I mean, to me, this is like the definition of talking about culture and contemporary culture. Yes. If you're responding to something that's happening, yes, technically that's a hot take. But contextualizing it in terms of how this moment is explicating so much of what has been missing from culture, that is not a hot take. Like, this show has done so many things that other shows have not done because they just haven't existed before, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that's where, as a reader, we need to think a little bit more critically about, like, oh, not just another master of none piece. I mean, that's the thing. It's, like, a lot of these pieces, if you don't write it right away, then, like, Beyonce's Lemonade came out, and someone was like, do you want to write something about it? And I was like, oh, hell no, because <laughs> I'm going to write it way too late for it to feel like anything hasn't been said. So, uh, like, call me in, like, 30 years. Well, I actually, Kyle and I had an episode with uh, of, of the podcast with Bajan Steve, and we covered a lot of these topics. And mm-hmm. um, and I actually am going to send this to you after later on tonight because I think that um, Kyle wrote this essay that I think you would love. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, that's the strong, strong. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was, read a few words off, but I wouldn't say love. It was, it's like that's a strong word. Maybe you would just think it's okay. Yeah, what maybe maybe care? you would just like have no reaction to it whatsoever, and that would be perfectly fine. <laughs> I think I think you would really enjoy it. However, uh, something that Bajan, you know, really pushed on us was the idea that, you know, it's our job as you know white guys in our twenties to really like you know seek out some of these different ideologies and outlooks on life and you know different people and you know befriend people of color and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess uh, something. Be friends with us. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. The... I said be friends with us. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to, you know, sound so weird, but um, you're saying it in a weird way. I am, I, and I get it's been a long day. Um, but I guess my my comment is like, you know, what should we be paying attention to? Um, you know, from like other, you know, Asian writers or filmmakers or something. Oh my God. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, uh, and, and not to put you, you in so, the spokesperson. No, role. no, no, no. I'm not even on the spot. Like I just, it's so funny because it's like, I, I don't even walk around feeling like this, like other Brown person walking in the world. Like I just am me and I, like feel fantastic in that. Mm-hmm. And when I was hanging out with these other Asian writers, I mean, it's like, Jenny Zhang, Karan Mahajan, uh, Tony Talathamuti, like all of these published amazing writers. And we're all writing different shit and we're all really cool and fun. And it's just like there is no difference. <laughs> like, yeah. No, no. I... There, we're not like gateway drug to another portal <laughs> in the universe. Like watch Game of Thrones if you want to do that. You know, I don't. I just, I think that's like that kind of thinking is just like, I'm just exhausted by it, you know, which is probably why I don't even engage with it. You know, I'm just like, mm, I'm not here to teach people what they should be doing or reading. Like you live in the same world I do and I'm finding it so you can find it, you yeah. know? Do you feel like... I just, I don't even engage. Like I'm, I'm not, I have too much shit to think. Look at this. Like, look, yeah. look, 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 like this is... 
no, I don't have time to think about that. She showed us that's again. My, that's my personal feeling about the, it. The hundreds of bottles on her wall uh, filled with perfume oils. and It looks like there's some textiles in the background. Are those cloth things? Yeah, there's just, I love Mexico. So I have ah. a lot of Mexican motifs. I have like serapes and a Frida Kahlo. And I'm just like really into this connection that I feel with with Mexico and, and South America. Well, I mean, I was, it's the Americas. I feel like we should all be connecting to that. But I was going to say, I thought they might have been color chips, and I was going to ask if we could expect uh, another foray <laughs> into the clothing lines. Oh, my God. No, I actually do have this shirt that I tried to do, and now I regret that I have it sitting in my house. But it's, like, different shades of blue, so it's, like, a sweatshirt, and it has, like, different words on it for blue. And it's really actually pretty cool. It's all blue. Um but no, I've only sold two of those. <laughs> Skipping it. <laughs> I don't want my sweatshirts. I don't know. They don't tell me. Um, so I think now that we've gotten further into it, it might be time to get to the story that you've struggled to tell. Uh, it's the reason we bring people onto the show to talk about it. We talk about the process. We talk about writing. Uh, but we eventually, and without much ado, uh, come to the point. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the story you'd like to talk about today and uh, maybe provide some of that context you were describing before? Well, you know, it's interesting. I um, I never really believed that I needed to go to therapy. And I grew up in a family where it was very looked down on because crazy people do it. And I think that's a common sentiment for a lot of people um, that therapy is like in the purview of like the wealthy white woman who's very fragile. It's like this idea that everyone has. And it's not true. That's a myth. Um, so I really wanted to talk about this story now because it's funny. I just started going back to therapy last week <laughs> and I took a break from it. So the reason I went was that I felt supremely unlovable and like almost tarnished and was very, very good at like wanton acts of sex and not thinking about it and like meeting people randomly and just going for it and nothing ever stuck. But all I wanted was to be in a relationship in a partnership. And I kind of had this like kernel of an idea that I let grow into this like monstrous parasite, which was that if I want to be a writer, I will never be in love. And that's what I needed to work out in therapy. And when I got to therapy, it was very, very quickly within a few sessions, you know, kind of peeled away to reveal that, no, when you were in high school, you were raped by your boyfriend. And that date rape has stayed and grown into its own persona within you that has really prevented any sort of psychic, emotional, loving connection with another human being. And to be openly talking about that was not something that I ever, ever wanted to do. Like, it was like, I cannot write about this. I cannot talk about this. I cannot share this with anyone except close friends. And she, my therapist, you know, was wonderful and kind of talking about how there's this like bridge between your mind and, and the way that you kind of think about things objectively and, the way that you store things very, very deep inside that kind of 
are, you know, remnants of who you used to be as a young child and, and, and they kind of get frozen in place and frozen in time. And it's so funny because it's like in different modalities that I've studied, anything that's stuck in time is like bad, right? It's like, you know, if it's, you're talking about karma and reincarnation or if you're talking about like acting and being in like the moment and, and being stuck in something, you have to keep it moving and living. And it's always the same thing. It's like connect to your breath and like be in the moment. And I just, I never wanted to write about that. Um, but at the same time, I felt very, very obscure and outside of this like world of hot takes and essays and writing and all this stuff. And I was like, fuck, like, I have so much to say. And no one knows I have so much to say. No one even knows I'm alive. No one even thinks I'm a writer. They think I'm like a brand manager or whatever. So I wrote this piece called uh, Meditations of a Deviant Daughter and it came out so easily and effortlessly. I mean, I don't even know. It was like I'd been waiting 15 years to write this thing. It was just like coming, coming, coming out of me. And I don't even describe being raped or anything. Like I don't go into details. Those are personal details. I don't even want to talk about those details. But I did write about how that experience in high school as a sophomore at 14 years old was the reason that 15 years later, or less than 15 years later, like 12 years later, I decided to go to therapy. And I wrote this essay, published it on the Feminist Wire, which is an amazing collection of feminist writing. And not just like feminist in a women's magazine feminist. This is like deep academic, like it's like a wet dream for feminists. Like I love this website because everything you read on it is like, yes, yes. Yes, white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy. This is what I want to read about. So I wanted to have my voice in a place that felt safe, that felt like a place where women like me could read it and tap into it. And it got published and people started writing me little notes, which is the thing that we were talking about. Like, what about the feedback from people that needed to read it? And I got a Facebook message from a girl in high school who was like, I was date raped in high school, in our high school too. You know, I got a message from another woman that I had hung out with a few times randomly like in Fort Greene Park messaging me thank you for sharing this piece my sister liked the piece and this is so funny because it's so embedded in these like kind of ugly social media things that we do liking things commenting on things like things that are so modern and specific to our time and my sister liked it and immediately it showed up on her feed and then my mother saw it and she was, my sister was crying in her room. We were roommates at the time. And I was like, what's wrong? What's going on? Why are you so upset? And she's like, I really fucked up. I, I really fucked this up. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, I, I liked it. And Ma just called me and she read it and she's crying. And, and it was like, this is it. This is my fucking moment. This is the thing I didn't want to write. This is the thing I didn't want anyone to know. This is the moment. Like, I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. And honestly, it's not even that I... What am I afraid of? I'm a grown woman. Like, I have my own life. But to hurt the person that has worked her entire life to give you a good life and who would die for you, I mean, that feels horrible, you know? And I didn't want to do that. 
through my writing and not through my nonfiction. I mean, fiction is one thing. No one knows that it's real or they can surmise that it's real. But nonfiction is fucking real. And then we had the talk. And immediately, you know, the tears on her end were so real. But at the same time, it was all the things that she would have said to me if I had been 14 and she had known this. Was, Why did you go to his house? Why did you do this? Why did you do what I told you not to do? And me, being 28 or, you know, however old I was when this came out, I was just like, Mom, no. You do not get to do this to me. That's why I didn't fucking tell you. And it was like the most liberatory conversation I've probably ever had in my life. And to write about it and to have this be part of my narrative and not be invisible or silent in that narrative is very, 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 very important. Because, I mean, now I'm reading the news, reading a letter from this survivor of the person who's, you know, the survivor's letter from the woman who's raped by this swimmer at Stanford, you know, it's like, this guy's walking six months, the guy that did it to me, I confronted him on the phone, you know, and I told him, you raped me when we were in high school. And he's like in the Marines at the time and was like, I want to kill myself right now. I mean, these are like just dark conversations that humans have with each other. And those are very, very, very hard things to, I mean, it's easy to talk about it with you because we're just talking, but it's very impossible to find a way to capture the, the darkness and the kind of feeling of inevitability or fate or whatever, you know, we explore in fiction. And then to write about it in nonfiction is like, just how do I lay this bare without making me flinch and maybe I make you flinch but not so much that you don't read it you know so it's these are all things that I was working out and I think that that kind of really broke the seal that I had put on myself which is like you are not able to truly be honest in this world which feels horrible you know and then it really made me start thinking about like how many women especially women who grew up Muslim or in a religious household or just like, you know, can't be open about their sexuality or whatever. And we are always lying. And what does it do to your psyche if you are always lying? And I think that's why fiction for me is so magic. I mean, it's like I can just lie and it's what works. That's like the point of this shit, you know. So I don't know. I think that to me is like a very hard um story to talk about even though it happened and I'm here and I'm fine you know but being back in this therapy space it really kind of makes me think that it's a process you know like I did a lot of good work since that last time that I was there but now I need a tune-up you know like I need to reconnect with you know myself within and and find the accord with myself and then I can deal with the world around me that was, that was incredibly powerful. I mean, it's the, well, it's an experience that obviously, you know, I don't, I can't speak for Jeff, but I can't relate to it personally. But I recognize the stigma of therapy and the, you know, the constant decisions that you make about what to tell your parents and how far into your life to let them because of the negative feedback potential that's there and just, the, the you know, the struggle to reconcile what you're doing with the fact that two people 
uh, have essentially committed their lives to trying to give you the best that they can possibly give you mm-hmm. and what it means to be, uh, to feel like you're living up to less than their expectations. I mean, aside from everything else, that's a struggle in and of itself. Yeah. And making them feel like they failed when they didn't, you know, it's not, has nothing to do with them. Because 15 is not someone who doesn't know. A 15-year-old makes their own decisions. You know, they might not be the smartest decisions, but they're not really thinking about other people. They're thinking about themselves in that moment, you know. It's not her, my mother's fault or my father's fault or anyone's fault. And I think mm-hmm. that's how they relate to things that hurt their children. All parents do it. You know, I should have been there for you. I should have helped you, you know. And it's like. And you, and you made a comment, you know, during your story, but. No matter how old you are, your parents are always going to think of you as, you know, the 14-year-old that they're bringing to practice after school. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you for sharing that. That was, thank you. you know. I can't believe I can't. I'm not looking at you guys, but I think that's probably better. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we're also in this like weird echo chamber where you can only see yourself and you cannot see us right now. Um, yeah. Which must be a little weird and disconcerting. Um, uh, and I do... I know you expressed some hesitancy when we initially talked about this, but I do tend towards the belief that even though the potential is there and it's greater than ever for the people who hear this, who hear you putting yourself out there, have this power that they can choose to claim or not claim where they can just say negative things about you. And I appreciate you putting yourself out there again for the people who need to hear this, who need to know that there is a light at the end of what, seems like a very long tunnel while you're in it Mm -hmm. and there's a lot more people than anyone knows (laughs) so well i mean something you mentioned you know in your story is what's going on with the woman you know who is assaulted at at stanford um and i mean i I think that initially you didn't want to talk about this story because you didn't know how open you wanted to get on the podcast but um I think that was, you know, a grisly reminder that this is something that's happening all the time. Um, so thank you for sharing your story. And, and, you know, if anyone listening has gone through anything similar, you know, just know that there are different ways or other ways of dealing with it. Um, and, you know, people are always going to be available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Tani, for people who are interested in that uh, feminist website, that mm-hmm. you were describing before. What is that website? Where can they find the it? The Feminist Wire. The Feminist Wire. Wire, like a uh, newswire. And uh, if people want to find more of your work online, where can they go? Uh, to com. T-A-N-W-I-N-A-N-D-I-N-I.com. Um, and are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, but it's High Wildflower, at High Wildflower, H-I Wildflower. And everybody should pick up Tony's book, Bright Lines. <laughs> yes, I feel like that's the, the Gracie Mansion book club. <laughs> that's the that is the lead that we buried here, um, which is that Bright Lines is one of the best novels I've read in ages. It's easily one of the best novels of 2015, and you should absolutely pick it up if you have a chance or see it anywhere. Actually, seek it out. Find it. It will be worth your while. So when Jeff and I started discussing the idea for the show, uh, this was the type of interview we had in mind, talking to a writer we love and respect about a subject that they really struggled to deal with in the hopes that the story would help 
people either find their voice or deal with the things that they've been living with. And I think this is the clearest evidence so far that we should keep going. And it's important to note that during the summer, we're not stopping work. We're just not publishing. So when we come back in September, we've already got a few guests lined up that we think you're going to love. And we hope we can surprise and delight and intrigue you with more stories and writers who are just out of this world. Yeah, one of the things that we set out to do with this podcast is to talk to people that we admire. And I think that we've done that and so much more. Um, you know, like Kyle said, we are you know, hopefully providing a blueprint for other struggling writers to tell their stories. Uh, so we appreciate you coming along for the ride. Uh, if you haven't heard all of our episodes, I encourage you to check out our website at www.podcast.com. Find a writer who you enjoy or admire. Uh you know, I know a lot of you just pick and choose the authors that you love, but uh, you know, the reason that we have the guests that we do have is because we think you're going to love all of them just as much as we do. Um, so if you do, make sure you let us know on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and wherever else social media is sold. Uh, and I promise that in September I will have a new stupid catchphrase that, that has to do with, you know, tweeting. Um, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, overcast wherever podcasts are found you can subscribe to our newsletter at tinyletter.com slash podcast and i want to thank ryan dan of holland Patton public library for doing the music at the top and the bottom of the show and every other episode on this show so we'll see you in september